Hello and welcome to the Sensibly Speaking Podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large, coming at you for, oh, I don't know, maybe another hour or two of podcasting greatness here on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and with video here on YouTube. And I do hear rumor that my podcast is out there on iHeartRadio and other platforms as well. Okay, folks. So uh, so for those of you who might have heard or remember from a few weeks ago, I lost a bunch of data. On, I, I crashed my computer uh, and lost three podcasts. And this one that we are redoing right now was one of those. And so I thought this was super important podcast for me as far as my understanding of Scientology, actually, and all of the cults and things that have popped up these over the last many decades, over the 20th century, really, have kind of come from a place that we've only sort of, we talked about a couple years ago, we dived into this topic, and I wanted to dive back into it again and maybe even get a little bit more detailed about it. So we are putting this podcast together. And I have asked my friend Joe Zimhart, who is someone who is, he's an artist. um, And he is also somebody who has worked for years in the mental health field and with cult intervention and and counseling. And he's, and he's done a bang up job. I met him actually on, um, I guess I can say this now. I, we, you know, we met uh, when we were producing a show. Uh, We're not producing, we were on a show that was being produced about Scientology. And, uh, and that never got aired. And we <laughs> very disappointed about that, actually, because it was really good. Uh, we had done that, done that work with Jamie DeWolf. So anyway, Joe Zimhart, welcome to my show. Hello. Good to see you, Chris. Good to see you again. And thanks so much for doing this again with me. I, I know we we're going to re- just repeat everything we said a couple weeks ago, but, um, but thank you very much. Yeah, well, like I said, it was a rehearsal in my mind. That's so, right. That's right. It's a dress rehearsal. And, it's, and it is interesting how we'll approach this a little differently this time in that the first thing I want to do for everybody here is why are we going to talk about somebody named Madame Blavatsky, who was this lady from turn of the century, you know, 19th, 20th centuries? Uh, why is she important? What did she do? Well, actually quite a bit. And she was actually quite an interesting character uh, from just from a purely historical perspective but also pivotal in the creation of what we now all call new age philosophy or new age movements and the whole free thought, new thought, like um, power, the, the law of attraction, the secret, this business of what you put out in the universe is what you're going to get back. That's a whole school of thought that has created its own sort of culty set of circumstances and these two things both seem to come from or be heavily inspired by and a lot of people were motivated by the work of Madame Blavatsky. So the one person I know who knows more about this than anybody else is Joe because he has done the deep deep dives on on researching who this woman was and why we should care about who she was if we actually want to understand why Scientology could even exist in the first place, why so many movements that you're going to see as we go through this exist at all they, they, because of her. So let's get into this. Joe, 
first off, for my viewers who aren't familiar with when you were on a few years ago on my podcast here, who are you and, you know, what's your, how do you describe yourself and, and your credentials? Well, I'm kind of old and my teeth aren't great anymore, but uh, I'll be 73 this year. Um, so, I, you know, I, I came to, of age during the 60s explosion and with all of that stuff and I did all of that stuff and I, I switched um, from an engineering major and I was getting good grades in college in 1967 to an art major. You know, so I, I, I did a 180 flip in terms of uh, orientation, in terms of career. Um, I did make a living as an artist for a while. You know, it was a hard scrabble living. But when I had more responsibilities, I looked for other work. And at the time in uh, 1984, uh, five, I happened to come across uh, people that were doing exit counseling and deprogramming. And this was after I had exited a cult. So I became a cult interventionist, you know, uh, 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 about 12 years full-time work internationally from 1985 through 1997. And then in 1998, I took a job at a psychiatric hospital and I still work there. So it's been uh, 22 years of, of, you know, in, in that field as a mental health professional in the intake crisis department of, of this place. So it's um, a fascinating work, uh, sometimes very tedious. Um, I won't go into it now, uh, but but I am working full time through this coronavirus thing because it's considered a, an essential uh, healthcare field, right? Anyway, so going back, um, yeah, I was an artist. And uh, while I was at the uh, University of Dayton and also later at the Pennsylvania Academy, I looked into modern art pretty deeply because that was uh, more fascinating than the archaic academic stuff that has been done forever. And I found that that some of the founders of modern art were deeply into the occult and theosophy, and uh, including Kandinsky and Kupka, Mondrian, uh, musicians, poets, um, you know, and, and I wanted to find out what that was about, and, and I eventually did. The, um, the keystone to the whole theosophical movement and the groups that I got into, including one cult-like group, a large one, uh, Church Universal and Triumphant, was seemed to me to be based on whether Madame Blavatsky was telling the truth or not. And she was that, again, keystone or that card that held up all the other cards in my mind. And so when I, after a year and a half or so of, of being involved with the Church Universal and Triumphant and, and uh, beginning to question it in 1980, I started to look back in, into books and, um, uh, you know, after my deconversion and, and found, uh, I focused on Blavatsky and I found a lot of stuff on her and, and she was an incredible personality. Uh, born in 1831, died around, 1890, 91, at age 60, 61 years old. Uh, she was born in the Ukraine area, uh, noble family. Father was a top military man, and her mother was a noted writer, well-educated. Uh, she could play concert piano when she was in her teens already. 
but she had another skill. Back then, all over Eastern U.S. and, and Europe and, and Russia, there was a deep interest in the occult, in what we call channeling or spirit channeling um, and spiritualism. And Blavatsky was already accomplished as a channeler at age 11. Would, really? Uh, oh, at yeah. Would wow. Yeah, she could wow her relatives with what kind of BS she would come up with from the ethers and from people she talked to on the other side. And, you know, so you and the other thing about her was, you know, she was very precocious, could learn languages quickly, well educated. She also was more inclined to be mannish. In other words, she hung out with the soldiers a lot, learned to curse like the soldiers, learned to ride a horse like a soldier which women didn't do back then. Women rode, rode side saddle, especially in the upper crust, you know? So she, in fact, when, when she um, was 17, her maid uh, told her that no man would ever marry you, you know, because she was obnoxious. She could be very difficult to get along with. We might call her a borderline personality today. Interesting. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or or an original feminist. I mean, without well, she, being insulting. I mean, she was stepping up and like, hey, this is who I am and deal with it, you know? Right. And and and, and she was. Her movement, Theosophy, did influence part of the feminist movement. They were very much part of that. Mm. You know, and, and uh especially under Annie Besant, when when who took over for Blavatsky and uh when Blavatsky died in eighteen ninety one. So so Blavatsky takes on this dare from the maid that she wouldn't marry, wouldn't find a husband. And she went to a ball dressed up, you know, and uh, she had kind of frizzy hair, which was unusual. It wasn't in her family. So who knows where that came from? But she had these stark blue purple eyes, you know, very penetrating eyes. And uh, so she met this older guy that was old enough to be her father, Nikifor Blavatsky. He was a colonel. And she charmed him and he proposed to her and they got married. And the marriage lasted all of three weeks and she ran away. <laughs> wow. That didn't so, take long. So around 18, she took off and, and uh, her family would send her money for some time, probably to keep her away from home, you know, because uh, she, she just, you know, one of the last things that Helena's mother said at her deathbed was, what's to become of poor Helena? You know, so they were worried about this this crazy woman they had in their midst, seemingly. So Helena got into the occult early on when she was young, and, and it was popular back then to study Rosicrucianism, to study Eliphas Levi. Uh, and she read all that stuff and was, you know, drinking it in, so to speak, soaking it in. Um, some of her favorite books were written by um, Bulwer, Sir Bulwer Lytton, you know, who wrote The Last Days of Pompeii, but he also wrote some books based on Rosicrucianism. And and so she absorbed that stuff and and kept it with her. A lot of and, theosophy borrows let, from the Rosicrucians. Yeah. Well, let's yeah let's go ahead and help the audience a little bit here because you know what what is Rosicrucianism as a as a subject just so we're clear on what she was diving into. Right. Um, the Rosicrucians, in English, Rosy Cross, mm -hmm. um, which is which or, is by the way what the Scientology Eight Pointed Cross is based on. Okay, right, which is Freemasonry as well. Every yep. every Masonic hall has this rosy cross symbol associated with it. They borrowed a lot of ideas. So the Rosicrucians were a secret organization. Uh, they've been researched pretty well, but but there were a group of men in Europe that did not want to be known, mainly Germans and Austrians, who claimed they were in touch with a secret brotherhood that was led by 
a character named Christian Rosenkreutz. Okay, so oh, interesting. Christian Rosenkreutz, right, right. He okay. never existed, but you know there is this character, and he was kind of like what later became the ascended or the masters of theosophy. You know, he was that model, and this is in the 1600s. You know, about 400 years ago, all this took place. Oh, interesting. Um, so they began okay. to put out pamphlets and as stuff. In like a, as in like a spiritual master, an ascended master. Yeah, kind of, but with political leanings and, and, and social economic leanings. You know, they, okay. they wanted to redefine how to run the world, uh-huh. you know, okay. from, from some okay. kind of an elite viewpoint. So um, word got around all over Europe that this thing existed and people wanted to join. And so there were Rosicrucian societies springing up many rival camps um, uh, to the point where the people that became the Freemasons later were also invested in this to some degree or other. And so Freemasonry grew out of the Rosicrucian movement to a great extent. And and Freemasonry emerged around 1717. So we're looking at about 50 years after the Rosicrucians started. Okay. So we get Rosicrucian secret society, Freemason secret society. Right. And then we get right. Theosophy coming from Madame Blavatsky, right. who's studying all this stuff and going, well, I got a take on this. Right, right, right. And this is where so, we now talk about Theosophy or the Theosophy. Right. So the, but, okay. but the key here is this. You have to remember the occult, what we call the occulture, was mixed in with culture and, and also with high learning back when. You know, astrology became astronomy later when science began to divest from the occult or supernatural and superstitious ideas in studying the stars and created the science of astronomy. Alchemy became chemistry under the same guise. For instance, during the time of Sir Isaac Newton, the great founder of calculus, along with Leibniz, Isaac Newton was, was an avid alchemist during his lifetime. You know, and, and people forget that, but yet he's one of the fathers of science, of what That's we right. understand as science and the scientific method. Right. And you he know, was also so, deeply religious as well. Right. He, 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 he was deeply into the Protestant version of the Bible, and he felt that, that he could discover through his research what the end times were. He believed he, there was a cult group around that he associated with that believed in the end times of his day. They said it was coming based on the book of Revelation. Now, wow. he distanced himself from it later, and, okay. and he burned a lot of his alchemical writings because you know, he didn't think they were came to anything. But but he definitely was a deep seeker in, in that realm, and so were a lot of people. Boyle, the father of uh, of chemistry, was an alchemist as well. He he delved into the same stuff. You well, know, let so, me uh, let me ask you a question then. So it seems that at this time we're talking about sixteen, seventeen, eighteen hundreds. So this yeah this is Enlightenment period. This is when we're moving into uh, you know the, like a, like a whole paradigm shift. Yes, science becomes a thing in the eighteen. Mm-hmm. You know, I think in the early eighteen hundreds. Yeah. So this is so. Am I understanding it right that these people represent kind of the intelligentsia? Like these are these are learned upper class for the most part or or you know upper middle class people who are really trying to figure out how the world works what's mm-hmm. going on and this is all pre we what we understand as science and even scientific mm-hmm. method wasn't formalized as right. a thing that you were teaching in school no yet at point no i mean so there was were, some yeah. like these are like proto scientists yes well, they're the fathers of our modern science. I mean, even Francis Bacon back then yep. Yep. developed the ideas of, of, of what we call the scientific method. 
-hmm. and so did Roger Bacon before him, you know, so we, we have those men doing this thing, you know, science didn't just appear out of the woodwork. I mean, there <laughs> right. were, there were priests, you know, back in the middle ages practicing, you know, in the monasteries, what we would call proto-science today, proto-capitalism. Yep. I mean, there is a lot of evidence of that, you know, so, so this was mixed in with the search for God, the search for nature. The idea was that the, the Christian religion released man to, for the most part, to explore nature as if you're exploring the mind of God. And that's what, that's how we got into science because we're looking yeah. at the mind of God, right? That's now, right. They now, were, they, I think I remember seeing a quote from one, from maybe it was from um, Newton himself. It was from one of these guys saying, look, I'm doing this because I'm trying to figure out how God put all this miracle, miraculous stuff together. I'm not yeah. doing this because I'm trying to deny God exists. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and I and and a lot of I see unfortunately we've lost some of this knowledge or this isn't particularly well known in the atheist community. Right. Where it's sort of represented that the church is on the one side and the scientists were on the other and it was clash of the titans from the beginning. And that's not really how this picture developed, you know. So no, I just that's one of the reasons I love talking about this stuff, you know? Yeah, you know, in fact it's still not a clear line between the two. Right. You know, the, the, the line began to be drawn when we began to define modernism at the end of the uh, 1800s, yeah. when, when the idea of modernism came. And that's the big breaking point. And that's when you begin to see people like Blavatsky and the spiritualists and, and, and others begin to compete with what was now being called science, science without God. You know, and Darwin was a big uh, uh, kingpin here in terms of defining that because he didn't want to get into religion at all. He didn't want to have God involved in what he was doing at all. And he didn't deny God. You know, he said it has its realm or place or whatever, but he, he, he didn't want to argue whether there was a designer or not. He said, as far as a designer is concerned, I'm just going to wave a white flag. I don't know how to answer that. You know, but all I see in front of me is is uh, natural selection, and that's what I'm going to do, you know? So he kept yeah. to that. He didn't deny religion. He just said, I'm doing science. And that was a key turning point. Now, Blavatsky, when, when, when she um, appeared in America in the 1850s and then more in the 1870s, she, she made her mark here with uh, seeking out spiritualism, and she met um, Colonel Olcott, who became her co-founder of theosophy. He was a Civil War colonel. At a seance, you know, spiritualists in New England, and, and they met and they got to know each other and they became lifelong buddies. In fact, they, they used to call themselves the chums, you know, back then. Interesting. So, and just to yeah. put this in a little more historical context, uh, 1879, Darwin publishes, you know, Origin right. of Species. 1879 is also when the first psychiatric or psychological lab was opened up in Leipzig, Germany, when psychology yeah. is actually born as mm -hmm. a um, uh, empirical science. We're now going to yes. study, we're now going to study life and see what it does and figure out why it's thinking the way that it is. Yeah. So this is all contemporary, you know, contem contemporaneous with one and with each other. Yeah. Also think about this, Freud and Nietzsche, you know, Freud was in that right. mix with the Vienna Circle. That's but Nietzsche is right. coming around and now he's redefining the sociology of, 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 of human beings and looking at the dominant Christian model and saying that this is sick. And, you know, that that it, it but, but he also said that it was necessary. 
to support the human race. He didn't deny it completely, but then he said that that version of what they call God is dead. And that be, that was came out then too. So now what you have is modernism emerging, and now you have these occultists like Blavatsky and religious people like um, uh, Mary Baker Eddy, who started Christian Science, trying to say that their religion, that their occultism is science, is a form of science. So they, you know, there was called a theosophical science or an occult science. There or was Christian, Christian science. science. Right. Exactly. Science of the mind, uh, the Church of Divine Science. Scientology right. comes out of it. Right? <laughs> That's right. So, That's right. You know, so what we're seeing is the same has happened to astrology, where astrology became a superstitious art. And astronomy became uh, a, a, a study of, of the stars based on the scientific method with instruments. Right. And they separated. And they're still separated. They're not together anymore. You know, the, the one has fallen away into an archaic superstition and, and, and kind of a playland for people that love the occult. And the other is a serious science. And we have the same thing happening now. And it's still going on. Modernism has diverged itself from religion as a superstition and, and looks at religion as a social movement, as a literary movement. In other words, they're looking at the Quran as, as, a, as a, a work of literature and, and a social movement, not as a divinely inspired text. Right. That's the big argument going on now. That's right. That is the big conflict that still rages today between fundamentalists who rose in right. the in early 1900s in response to this. This right. is where the cult became a pejorative term for the first time because the exactly. fundamentalists were using it to yeah. just, you know, to to talk about all the heathens and they were like, mm -hmm. "Hey, we're the guys who who are going back to the root basics, the fundamentals. That's why it's called fundamentalism." They wrote right. this whole I think 11 volume encyclopedia of all the yes. belief stuff. And, yeah. and it was a real thing. And they started referring to, uh, to non-fundamentalist groups as cults. And of course, we've totally flipped the script on them at this point. But it's interesting how this stuff mm -hmm. all has developed. So. Yeah, it is. You know, fundamentalism is, is really a new religion. Fundamentalist Christianity is not old. It doesn't represent the original Christianity at all. Yeah. It's really a new development. It's a reactionary movement to modernism. Isn't so, all you know, this so fascinating how this yeah, all yeah. breaks down? So, so here we are still arguing about this in one form or another, but but it's caused separation in society. Yeah. You know, you can see time. it on our political divisions and so forth. And I think the division is, and is and this is what Blavatsky was selling. She was selling that that she was intimately connected with real beings, real like advanced human beings that she called the Mahatmas giving her all this ancient wisdom and, and making it more modern. And she became the scribe or the amanuensis, as, as she described, the secretary, so to speak. Mm. She was only a filter. She wasn't, um, you know, a, a, a producer. She just was letting it through her. I'm right? channeling all of this information to you right. guys. I'm not the originator of it. I'm receiving all of exactly. this special knowledge and giving it to you and, so, and writing thousands of pages yes. of work on this. This is She was not writing a couple pamphlets. No, no, no. She was no. deep into this stuff. Yeah. yeah. And, and if you try to read her secret doctrine, I mean, it's really difficult to, to read because it's, it's kind of pieced together from about 100 different books that were in her library and her memory and her, her, her cheeky way of writing. I mean, she... she calls, you know, in, in the secret doctrine, she called modern science a strutting gamecock. 
it thinks it knows something it doesn't know anything you know and then she wants to convince her audience of the certainty of her knowledge so she's selling certainty you know she's selling ah, confidence right you know that's and the, that's yeah. why she had to convince people she was really in touch with real beings although nobody ever met them except her allegedly. <laughs> except her right that's right <laughs> and we have seen this pattern repeat itself uh, all the way to to now these channelers and you know these people yeah. who receiving inspiration from spiritual entities who lived long ago i mean who was that guy who was channeling the dude from atlantis there was a guy in the early 1900s who was doing that and making a name for himself, too. So this was a thing that people... Well, Edgar Casey was channeling yes. that kind of thing. Yeah. Yes, that's it. That's the guy. Yeah. yeah. So so channeling was kind of a... It, there was a period where that was actually an accepted, you know, like some people really thought that was how, that was how truth was revealed. Yeah, well, the book of Urantia came out, you know, in the first part of the 20th century and then published around 1955. And that was channeled by uh, disaffected uh, Seventh-day Adventists, you know, so it came out of their movement. And, and Seventh-day Adventism is based on this Ellen White, who was a channeler back in the 19th century. He revealed knowledge. It was uh, inspired knowledge, so to speak, back then. Interesting. You know, so, so we're looking at a couple interesting things here. You know, can the human mind um, access this other minds on the other side that have died, you know, or what theosophy came to call the Akashic Records, which is this repository of wisdom and knowledge from the universe somewhere up there in the ethers, that if you if you meditate deep enough, if you tune into the right channel in your brain, so to speak, the right little like a radio, you know, is, is that that's the symbol they used, you could tune into Ascended Master Moria and he could channel, you know, through that you could tune into the great divine director or Jesus or Buddha, you know, or even uh, Sir Isaac Newton, you know, or whoever, you, you know, the pharaohs, whatever you want to do. You know, there's about 100 versions of Cleopatra being channeled out there back in the <laughs> 80s. Right. So take your pick. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And I have to I have to, again, drop this little this little note that um, L. Ron Hubbard referred to automatic writing. Right, which is which is the channeling, right? It's just you know right. getting this thing and then writing, and you're not controlling the hand; it's just going based on what's coming through. There was mm -hmm. a claim that Dianetics was channeled, was automatic, was done through automatic writing. I mean, I, it's I didn't, possible. He didn't, he didn't stand on a podium and 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 say that, but I, I remember that claim coming from somewhere mm -hmm. out of this. Well, but you, it's, think, it, but it, you know, also Chris, remember in the late 19th century, the Ouija board was also. Uh, right. incredible popular thing right. it took the world by storm same right. thing channeling spirits and letting this planchette move automatically so to speak around these letters and communicating from from up above you know of course now if, if you understand the mechanism of of, of how the, the 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 human mind works when it's in trance it's easy to explain how all these messages come out but and it's easy to test it too but people won't allow me to test it if, if they suspect I'm tricking them or something, you know. So anyway, but right. but the point is that, that that kind of communication with something deeper, deep gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S, the deep knowledge that science can't reach, you know, is, is still very much in vogue today. You know, there's yes. been an upsurge in astrology. There's been an upsurge in, 
in um, an interest in, in gurus, again, among the young, that think that they know more than the average professor does in a university and so forth. You know, so um, it's still around. The, the all culture is still around us very much. In fact, you see it in, in, in a lot of Christianity in a form of, uh, you know, the belief that prayer is like magic, that if you pray hard enough, you can become healthy, wealthy and wise you know, and you don't have to do much else, you know. So there's, there, th- that part of the art culture is, is in our mainstream Christianity as well. Yeah, somehow it's sort of merged with that because it wasn't, mm-hmm. I mean, if you go back far enough, I mean, back pre this stuff, Christianity wasn't like that at all. No, well, it, it, to some extent it was. I mean, there's always the, the superstitious Christian. They've always been around, you know, sure. that believed okay. if, if you fasted long enough, you will change the world. You know that, that. Oh, okay. Sort of the mystical. You know that's always been around, and right. and there's always been church fathers that have kind of tried to suppress that kind of superstition from Saint Augustine on. You know, so you have this argument of reason versus superstition within the church that's been ongoing since the beginning, okay. and and you have the same thing in Islam. You have the same thing in Buddhism. You you know you have aspects of Tibetan Buddhism which is very superstitious. You know, even the Dalai Lama believes in a kind of a magical oracle. You know, to this day. Mm. Um, so, you know, Tibetan, the Tibetan version of Buddhism is perhaps the most superstitious of all the Buddhisms out there. Interesting. So, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. All right, cool. So we still see all kinds of parts of this, not just sort of surviving in, in rare bookshops or something. No, this is actually still going. And, and what Mm -hmm. we see with so many modern spiritual cults is taken just straight up from this. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, New Age, New new Thought, these two streams. Okay, so let's just define that a bit. New Age, based on the words themselves, means that there's a belief that the world is going to shift, a paradigm shift, and we're going to enter into a new age. You know, there's this belief in indigo children are being born since the 1980s, and they're going to become the New Age leaders because they think differently than the average human being does. Now, most of these kids have ADD and other problems, but... The parents want to think they're special, these kind of new agey parents, you know. So so the, the new age idea has been around since forever. I mean, you think about the book of Revelation in the first century. It was about the coming new age. The Christ That's was true. going to come again in that generation and bring about the millennium, you know. And that belief is ongoing within Christianity, especially within the sectarian types like Jehovah Witnesses. And uh, a lot of evangelical groups want to believe that this is going to come in their lifetime. The, the, the best-selling book among Christians, in fact, all over the United States for, for many years, was the the, um, the late, uh, oh God, it was written by Hal Lindsey. And, and he predicted that the end times would come in 1888. You know, and so Hal Lindsey's the late great um, planet Earth, or what was, I forget the title of it now. But it was a huge Oh yeah, the late great, yeah, the late great planet Earth. Yeah, but how yeah, New World coming, sold. the road yeah. to Holocaust. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. He wrote he yep. wrote extensively. It came out like in the sixties. And and it, of course he his date was eighteen eighty eight. Of course, eighteen eighty eight came and went and we're still here dealing with stuff. Right. So so this idea of prophesying that that the world is going to become anew in your lifetime is very popular in Christianity, in Islam, in because the, the coming Mahdi, the coming Messiah in Islam is also a belief among their fundamentalists. Mm, and then you have course. the New Agers who had the belief like the um, 
in, in the late 1880s, the, the um, Aquarian um, uh, conspiracy thing came out. And, and I remember in 1888, all these people going to places like in New Mexico and Chaco Canyon, and in the thousands going to Chaco Canyon to meditate together, planting crystals all over the ground in order to bring about the new age. You know, wow. this was a big thing back then. It was in all the papers. You know, in fact, when I was in New Mexico at the time, uh, I had written an article about it, kind of mocking this idea of the Ukrainian conspiracy and mentioning that crystals are going to be buried everywhere. You know, so the park ranger for Chaco Canyon called me and he said, what is this thing about crystals? And I, he says, because we're expecting a flood of these people into our park here. So they decided, based on what I told them over the phone, to allow them to do their rituals in the Great Kiva, which is a huge ancient uh, Native American circle that used to be a big building at one time, but it's now it's an open pit. And they said they could do their rituals there. And the park rangers brought in three inches of clean fill to fill that whole thing. And when, they, when the whole thing was over the next day or two, they went out and they plowed that up again. And they had three giant barrels of crystals that they put away somewhere because they didn't want to pollute the area. You know, they want to keep it relatively archaeologically pristine. And right. these two ages were putting crystals and crap all over the place that they thought was the magic way of bringing around the new age. You know, so this is the kind of thing that we deal with all the time. Right. You know, the alignment of the planets and, and the, the Mayan factor. Remember that? Oh, God. Yes. That was huge. It, it's surprisingly easy to get a group of people to align around a leader who's talking about this stuff and yeah, yeah. put so some kind of idea out. Yeah. It's 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 scary people, how easy it is. People want to believe that they're living in a time when all this evil and nonsense is going to change magically and they want to believe that they're chosen and they're going to be part of it because they're enlightened, right? Yeah. Uh, that, that's what their hope is. Yeah. And um, so yeah, it's easy to rally the troops when you, when you put up a, a, a huge lie. <laughs> it, unfortunately, it is. Well, Hitler so, did it, you know. So. <laughs> okay, so, so let's go. Let's, let's, uh, let's target back to Blavatsky then because let's talk about right. what did she – so she's writing, she's channeling, she's popular, she's writing books. What is it that makes her such a focal point? Because there were a lot of people we've talked about. Casey, we talked about all these other guys. This was a this was a very interesting time period. This late mm-hmm. later half of the eighteen hundreds. So how come she ends up standing out in history this way? Okay, I, I think it's based on one thing. In her secret doctrine, she actually came up with a very novel approach to to human evolution. And she was she was turning Darwin on his head, so to speak. Um, she she uh, disliked that kind of science. In fact, in her apartment flat in New York, she had a, a chimpanzee dressed up like Darwin with a copy of his uh, Origin of Species in its hand and a pair of spectacles on it. You know, so th- this is you know her way of. Uh, she, she also was a chain smoker. She smoked hashish. I mean, she. You can't stop talking about her. You know, she just was yes. very colorful. <laughs> wow, man! <laughs> and, and so and she would roll her own time. Yes. So so not of that time period. No, no, you know? no. Yeah, you yeah. got to remember from an early age. She's well educated, talented, yeah. an excellent equestrian. Could play piano and made money doing both. She was an equestrian in a circus as a young lady, and she could teach piano and and, and play. 
And she also learned how to ride like a soldier and swear like a soldier and smoke like a soldier, you know, so quite a woman. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, her idea in the secret doctrine was that human evolution started spiritually and devolved into the physical state. Ah, okay. very unlike the, you know, the pond theory of, of little germs beginning to appear somewhere in a pond and then evolving into lizards and and human beings, you know, that kind of thing. She she flipped that over. She said science only has a little tiny part of this. And she set up the system of seven rounds of devolving from spirit back to base matter and then back up to spirit again. And now you can see how alchemy enters into theosophy because alchemists believe that you can take base matter, the dark raven-like substance, put something called the philosopher's stone in with it, which is more metaphorical and mental, and then bring spirit out of matter, which they call gold. You know, so they weren't really looking for gold. That, that's the crude alchemy. But they were looking for a way of, of finding what's corruptible, carbon particles, you know, life as carbon, and, and bringing it into gold, which is imperishable and doesn't change color. It's a symbol of, of eternity, gold, you know, for, for the alchemist. Okay. So that's what they were doing. And so she's flipping the script here and, and creating a new science, so to speak of the occult by showing how this is happening and describes all this stuff in this crazy quilt of information in, in her um, uh, uh, secret doctrine. In fact, it is like a crazy quilt because what she said was she just took information from the past, from Rosicrucians, from the Egyptians, from Eliphas Levi, from, from who knows where and what else, um, and stitched them together like pearls of wisdom. That's all she did. She doesn't claim to have invented it, uh, but she did invent this thing. And, and so this idea that of evolution, of spiritual evolution, that you hear from New Agers, that you hear from people that, that are um, um, superstitiously, superstitiously inclined to science. In other words, they look into science like physics and, and try to use it to, to improve on this evolutionary theory of the mind. In other words, like the Tao of physics and the dancing Wu Li masters by Larry Zuk, uh, Gary Zukov. You know, th- th- he was a favorite of Oprah Winfrey, for instance, on her show for a time. Oh, yeah. Or Deepak so Chopra, who's most famous yeah, And for Deepak, same thing. Yeah, Corrupting yeah. physics and quantum physics into so, like Blavatsky, yeah. yeah, like Blavatsky, they're, t- they're trying to take their turn at using what science has, quote, revealed and then plugging it into their occultism. Right. You know, in, in some weird way, which pleases the new age mind, you right. know, because they believe they believe not only that the self is the repository of ancient knowledge and all of that, but that the cosmic self, the cosmic narcissist in them believes that they and the world are one. Right. 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 So that's that's not. And this know. was a template that was sort of put in place by Blavatsky. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And, and, and she took a lot of her cues from the ancient Gnostics. You know, which were right. eventually thrown out by the church as heresy. But but the Gnostics were interesting. They were a group uh, from the first century on. Uh, and, and probably there were more Gnostics than what we call proto-Christians back in the day, about 30, 40 years after Paul had died. You know, what we call modern Christianity, which really appeared around the fourth century, um, was outnumbered by Neoplatonist adapting Jesus and Gnostics adapting Jesus than those guys in Rome that developed what we call the Roman Catholic Church. 
you know, which was Augustine to try to infuse reason into it. Yep. They didn't buy this kind of new revelation of the Gnostics. Blavatsky revived that ancient Gnosticism, claiming that that was lost Christianity and that she is going to show you the true Christianity, which is really based in the perennial wisdom of all religions. The perennial wisdom, meaning ancient Hinduism, ancient Buddhism, ancient, you know, the roots of Islam, all of the Sufism, especially, you know, they, they always love the magical, mystical stuff. You know, it's the Sufi, not the Muslim necessarily that they really like. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Now, if I ha now let's let's since we've since we've brought this term up and and it's and it's of such fascination to me, historically speaking, um, Gnostics are. I mean, I identify way more that way than I do with Chris. if I had to go Christian or Gnostic. I'd go, I think I'll go Gnostic. But let's talk about that real fast because Gnostic is is not a. Um, uh, unified, you know, system of belief. No. There's a lot of different things that fall under this umbrella called Gnosticism. So, what, yeah. generally speaking, what are we when we use that word? And when Blavatsky was talking about that, what was she talking about? What are we talking about with this? Okay, um, yeah, yeah. The word Gnostic is like using the word car or the word cult. Yeah. I mean, right. you, you gotta give me a thousand more words to tell me what you're asking about or talking about because. They don't mean a whole lot. They're just a general term. Mm -hmm. So Blavatsky's form of Gnosticism, she tended to borrow more from this character called Valentinus, the mm -hmm. Valentinians, which was a form of Neoplatonism that revived, you know, that, that kind of got into the Jesus story as being um, that Jesus was kind of the spirit more than a, a man that if maybe took possession of a man. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that this, this energy or the spirit came from something called the pleroma, the P-L-E-R-O-M-A, which is this divine cloud of light, which is okay. the eternal, okay, it's the eternal thing that everything came from. Oh, so, everything so, comes from this pleroma, this light. Right. And so okay. this one version of, of, of Gnosticism says this. There's dozens of versions of it, but this one version is the one that influenced theosophy. And it says that, that, in the Pleroma, and, and this is the Pistis Sophia is, is the document, it's ancient, it goes way back about 1800 years or more. Um, uh, th this one of the, the dual beings, because male female was one thing in the Pleroma, and oh. one side of it called Sophia in the myth, they called her Sophia, wisdom, she decided to play with the light and, and create something on her own without consorting with the other gods or what they call the aeons, you know? And so she created this monstrosity that in the Greek is called Yaldeboeth or something like that. It's a long Greek word. And it looked like a lion beast, a, a brilliant lion beast. You know, that's partly how they describe it. And, and this thing decided it was God and it wanted to create all on its own. And it started to create what we call matter, energy, space, and time, the messed world. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's where it okay, comes from. Okay, the physical universe is created by universe. this now, monstrosity. The Greeks, okay. The Greeks okay. had a word for this. The Greeks under Plato, Platonism again, called this creator god, which is a lesser god, the demiurge. Ah, I've heard that term before many times. Demiurge, but I didn't which get means word creator, it, right? Got so, it. So now we're talking about the, the, the Gnostics and later the theosophists began to look at Christian 
the, the Christian evolution and say Jesus was not really of the Jewish tradition. He was against it. You know, so this is the great divide between the early church and the early Gnostics. They said that Jesus is coming from the true God to help correct what the false God created here. Oh. That Jesus is saying we are not of this world. Okay. Okay. So, so am I to understand then that the God of the Old Testament would be this demiurge, demiurge. not actual the the plethor, the, plum, the pleroma, pleroma. Yeah. yeah, not yes. not the God of that. Right. This lesser thing that this female sort of side had created. That's what everybody's worshiping, and that's the terrible God who's that's committing terrible genocide, God. killing that, babies, wiping tribes right. out, very jealous. Right. That's this thing, and Jesus is coming and going. Hey, dad, 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 dad. No, 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 no. You want to go back to the to the the real yeah. life? Yeah, right. So, so this is even, what Bobowski's you know, putting out. Okay, people like Emanuel Swedenborg, who developed the first Theosophy through his religion, and later William Blake, the poet, that was a follower of Swedenborg when he was young, they believed in that version of Gnosticism that that God of the Jews is really a false god, and. And so Blake, in one of his poems, called that god Nobo Daddy. You okay. can look it up. Nobo, Nobo Daddy. Daddy. In other words, the, the Nobo Daddy is the rule maker. He's making all these rules that don't aren't really, um, uh, uh, the, 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 in other words, the truth. Do you see Blake, Nobo Daddy there? Yeah, father of jealousy, who hides yeah. himself in clouds and loves hanging and drawing and quartering. Yeah, through the bottomless pit darkly. There you go. So that's yeah. that's that's that was comes from ancient Gnosticism. They they cornered Jehovah or Yahweh or whatever you want to call him, Elohim, you know, the creator God, the one that kicked us out of the Garden of Eden um, as the fake God. OK, so so now you okay. get the tension between fundamentalist Christianity, which is trying to sustain the biblical tradition, which, you know, the the. The Christians had this big argument with the Gnostics that that the Old Testament is the same God because Jesus, you can see in the New Testament Jesus talking about my Father and, he, yep. and he's quoting from ancient scripture all the time because Jesus was a Jew. Yep. But the Gnostics said that Jesus really wasn't that Jesus you're talking about. So what happened? The church the church was forced, you know, by the three hundreds in their councils to combine the Old Testament with the New, and thus we had the Bible. Two books put together. Interesting. So the Gnostics forced their hand right. to not just to have a Christian testament, but to combine both testaments, saying this is the God we believe in. It's the same God. Right. And the that's God why Moses, everybody the reads this thing and yeah. feels so schizophrenic all these decades, all these right, millennia, right, right. because you got this psychotic God in the Old Testament, and then you got this fatherly, heavenly God who's forgiveness and turn the other cheek in the New Testament. And right. these two things don't go so well together. And, yeah. and you but, and everybody comments on that. So so people like the Valentinians were they attracted the elite among Christianity, among Christians. They were well educated followers of the Valentinians. And for a long time they were accepted as as part of the Christian fold, just more elite, you okay. know. Okay. But then this thing came in, you know, their belief that, that that there's this elitist version of God or whatever that that wasn't the popular God of uh, you know that, that Jesus represented, and they became you know anathematized by the church, and the Valentinians were 
considered anathema, their teachings. Right. You know, so, so, I mean, I'm not arguing one right, one is right or the other is right. I'm just saying this is the history of it. Oh, absolutely. Me too. I, I'm fascinated from it by all of this, by the story of it. Yeah, I, exactly. I, I got I got no vested interest in either side of this thing being true or false because I got my own ideas about all this stuff that has nothing to do with any of this. But so I find it fascinating in the same way I find Tolkien's fantasy and mythology yes. fascinating. Yeah. yeah, but this is real. This is so this took centuries to develop. This was real people yeah. doing this. I mean, it's fascinating. Yeah, it's neat stuff. Yeah. So 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 anyway, when I began, when I left Church Universal and Triumphant and began studying this, this is what I got into. I thought that this is incredible stuff, you know, but yeah. nobody really wanted to hear about it because <laughs> <laughs> it bumps up against so many current beliefs. It's like, yeah. no, how I believe is the right way. And there can't be any other way because that's right. what my preacher told right. me when I was five years old. And that's the truth. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, so people... People, whether they're New Agers or or Christians or or, yeah. or whatever, they love to feel certain. They don't want they want to be anxious about reality. You know, That's nobody right. likes that. That's right. You know, so it's easy to con people if they're anxious. That's for sure. And yeah. this, and I know for having gone down that rabbit hole for decades myself, how powerful the draw of certainty can be. I've commented right. on it many times in my shows. So Blavatsky's drawing all this stuff together and putting it into her mix. Mm-hmm. Cause she's because she's been accused of plagiarizing. Oh yeah, definitely. And that's definite, that's a fact. She's just she's just drawing all this stuff together, throwing it together. I have to comment on the fact that L. Ron Hubbard follows in the exact same tradition mm-hmm. and basically said as much in 1951, 52 when he was putting this stuff together. He said, Look, I'm not. I'm not discovering new things. I'm just selecting out the important things from what people have put together already and combining them into these truths. And this is how the universe works. And I get that this was carbon copy. He's, he's plagiarizing the plagiarist when yeah. he's doing that. That's a good way to put it, plagiarizing the plagiarist. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I have this book, and I mentioned it on our first talk, Occult America, yeah. And it was written in, in back in 73, you know, it's out there and it's by uh, uh, the, the author's name is uh, uh, John Godwin, G-O-D-W-I-N. And it was published by Doubleday. But in here, he mentions Blavatsky in here. He has a whole chapter on um, on on L. Ron Hubbard, by the way. Oh, but yeah. Yeah. So you can pick this up if you can find it. It's been out of print for a long time. So he says of of Blavatsky, and I find this as a good synopsis, even to this day, he said that, unfortunately, Madame suffered from a dichotomy in her talents. She was a spellbinding raconteur and an exorable author, the kindest thing one can say about her two voluminous works, Isis Unveiled and The Secret Doctrine, is that after all, they weren't written in her native language, which was Russian. Right. (laughs) And... uh, and then, uh, by the way, uh, Helena Rorich translated The Secret Doctrine into Russian. She was the mother of Agni Yoga, which was a spinoff of Theosophy. That was a group I was involved in. Mm. So, so anyway, so it wasn't written in Russian. Um, some of her subsidiary outpourings were even more stupefying. So here's a quote from Blavatsky, right? To get a taste of how she wrote. Yes, please. In, in order to become the knower of the all-self, Thou hast first to be the knower. To reach the knowledge of that self, 
thou hast to give up self with a capital S to non-self with a capital N. Being to non-being, and then thou canst repose between the wings of the great bird, and that's an italics. I, sweet is the rest between the wings of that which is not born, not dies, but is the alm throughout the eternal ages, unquote. So wow. figure that out. Yeah, I'm struggling too right now as we're talking. Whoa, whoa. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, and the so thou and the those also, it, it's, it's, uh, it reminds me of uh, how Aleister Crowley would write. Yes. Yeah, very obtuse, strange language. A lot of channelers do this stuff. And it puts people in a kind of trance because you're, as the person keeps channeling and you keep reading his stuff, your mind's trying to fill in what the hell does this mean? Yeah. You can't reason at that point. You got to just yeah. keep flowing along. So the trick that I did to myself when I was into this stuff, and I, everybody does when they're into it, is thinking that some super mind within you is really picking up the information and the truth, <laughs> right. even though your little mind can't quite figure it out yet. You know, so that's why that's you right. keep going. Yeah, that's because right. you believe you have a super mind, right? No, no that's absolutely or, true. Or in yeah. Scientology's, you have an operating Thetan somewhere within you, right? Exactly. There you go. Exactly. Somehow yeah. it's somehow it's registering, and I'll just ponder it for a while, and it'll eventually click. Yeah. You know, so, sort of so God, Godwin goes on to say, to make matters worse, <laughs> we have absolutely no way of knowing how much of this purple blah she meant seriously. For in her own later confession, which she retracted, reaffirmed, and retracted again, she recorded, what is one to do when in order to rule men, it is necessary to deceive them? Right. That's from right. Blavatsky, yeah. So, so what she's reiterating here is something which is even around in our right-wing politics today, and you find it in the philosophy of Strauss, who was more recent, last four decades that inspired the, the neo-right that came into Congress. Um, mm. And he borrows from Plato and the Republic. And, and the idea is this. Plato said that in order to run a proper polis, in other words, a civilized city, you have to come up, you have to make up some kind of a structure. You know, So you come up with a pious fraud or a noble lie, it's called, and in order to get people to believe in it, because if they don't, society will go haywire and everybody has their own ideas and you end up with anarchy, you know, so you need something to keep the glue together, even if it's some, you know, statue of a, of a, of a thing glued to the oak tree, you know, and whatever it is, something to keep the belief system together will, will make society thrive better. So you so have the polis this. It, is, is the idea that the polis itself or the idea of a democracy, let's say, for example, or a government structure itself is not strong enough. You need something more unifying, more perhaps it, it emotionally works, Yeah, satisfying. it works better. I mean, look, look, you you and I have studied cults for now, for I longer than you, but, but you know yeah. what I'm talking about, how tightly people can can get closed in on the belief system. Oh, yeah. You know, they, they orbit around it 24 hours a day, like, like they're on a separate planet, you know, and, right. and, and, and so... Um, so the strength of, of strong belief is very important for people to be motivated, you know, so, so we come up with rules that are, that we call ethical. In other words, the father shouldn't abuse the wife, the wife shouldn't abuse the father and, and, and all of that. But then you have some system to say, you have to obey the father and the family in order for the family to stay cohesive. Right. 
Yep. And, yep, and to do. some extent, we can understand that. You know, somebody has to make a decision when nobody's making a decision. You know, there's That's some right. logic to that. You know, there there's is some logic. Hopefully, the right person's making the decision, you know. Well, exactly. It's only when you get psychotic decisions or you find that the system becomes more important than the context that we start getting problems, right? Okay, so, so, yeah, so back to Blavatsky's idea that yep. you have to deceive people in order to rule them. I mean, think of our own politics. You know, we have this, the framers of the Constitution knew that they didn't have things perfect. Mm -hmm. They just thought this is an experiment. Let's let it fly and see if it works. And they had amendments and they had all kinds of Federalist papers and they had all kinds of things to make adjustments. They even had a constitutional convention to kind of readjust the whole damn thing. Yep. You know, at one point. And we probably need another one. But but uh, what I'm pointing out here is you're still trying to sell the package. You, tr you, you know, you know that it's not a certain truth that this is, you know, came down from God the way a lot of fundamentalists want to believe that the Constitution and the Bible fell out of heaven like two bricks. You know? <laughs> right. and, and there and, you go. And yet you can build a society or at least a sub-society of our current society on the idea that they did fall out of the sky as two done completed. And, and there's a certain right. set of people who will absolutely believe that and will unify around it. And you can organize people accordingly. Yeah, it, you, you, you can. You can organize people a lot better. I mean, when you think yeah. about, you know, a, a, a lot of army ants, by dint of their instinct and, and evolution, they are bonded together to do the same thing, you know, and, right. and, and they, they're magical to watch them, how they work, how they climb and make bridges over streams and, you know, how they swarm a bigger creature and kill it and help each other. And, you know, I mean, what the hell's going on in that little ant brain? You know, they're <laughs> well organized. Right. <laughs> That's right. Well, you get you actually. I was just reading about this uh, yesterday in this in this book. All right, skeptics yeah. in mind. Um, fascinating book. Very, 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 mm -hmm. very good. And the chapter I'm on right now is about group mind. Um, but you get this. You get this. The, the emergent properties is what they call it in yeah, science. Exactly. That, 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 that new properties come out of systems where the individual, like let's say a hive of ants, uh, you know, a swarm of ants, right. individually, each of those ants isn't going to pull off or even behave right. a particular way, but you get a whole bunch of them together. And there comes this point where suddenly they're operating as sort of this unified whole. And it's very, very unexplained still in science. And it's absolutely yeah. fascinating. Yeah, there's been a revival. Yeah, go ahead. Well, that's I was going to say, so with humans, you get all of us together on a principle or a belief, and it doesn't have to be true. If no. We all think it's true. We all act accordingly, and we all agree. And this is where that that idea that, that Hubbard forwarded of reality is, you know, agreement is reality. Reality right. is agreement. There's a certain level of contextual truth to that. In some contexts, yeah. that's true. And this is one of those one of those cases. Yeah, and I think that's correct. For instance, you know, I did a paper on astrology once, and, and the only reason astrology works is because an astrologer is very good at getting the client to agree. Yep. That's it. But there's a third thing that's missing, which, which we have in science, which is there is an, a reality outside of that, of that agreement yes. reality that you can test the agreement on. And that's what's missing in cults. That's what's missing in the occult. And that's what's missing in superstition. You have a lot of agreement and a lot of consensus and a lot of feeling of certainty, but you don't have a way of testing, you know, that, that reality because a lot of it's untestable. 
you know, that's it, right. it's, it's like belief in unicorns. You know, so <laughs> that's right. Yeah, and yeah. this is what we this is why science is still so new for us and to our way of thinking, because we got right. centuries, millennia of this other kind of thinking. Mm-hmm. And science is so new. I mean, it's like a couple like, you know, two centuries old and we're still getting our, our wits around right. it. And the idea of objective reality, testable reality, scientific method is, this is why it's such a revolution in our thinking. Yeah. And we're you living know, in such interesting times. You and you brought up this thing, emergentism has been revived. There was a, an emergent school around Alfred North Whitehead, who, who co-authored the Principia Mathematica with Russell. Hmm. Um, and so Whitehead's ideas influence what we call emergentism today. And, and that's become a new science in itself on how to look at things. Now, I think what, what bothers people about it is that, that it, it can also include why we have a spiritual life, you know, and, and why not? Because we do say we do, you know, so there's a way to explore that. It's, it's not denying that, the, the mm-hmm. emergentist uh, type of uh, uh, looking at things. But, but you're right. You know, if, 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 if you... Um, you know, put uh, five dots together in a circle, you see a circle. You mm-hmm. don't just see five dots. That's right. Yet, what's there? There's only five dots. So right. it's the arrangement which makes the circle emerge, even though there's no circle there. Exactly. You know? So that's, exactly. that's what emergentism is. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, and it's it's a fascinating study the yeah. the the melding of psychology and objective reality perception how all this stuff comes together it's it, it, endlessly fascinating stuff. Yeah, I think it is. But anyway, let's get back to more basic. Yeah, yeah. Stuff. No, get back to this. <laughs> yes. Well, because it all it, it all sort of springs out of this stuff, and and Blavatsky, Hubbard, these these cult leaders, they take advantage of this stuff for personal gain and that's where mm-hmm. we have an immoral objection to it and they also of course make other people suffer as a result so that they can gain and that's a that's a moral problem but yeah. but the the philosophy behind it has all kinds of very interesting question marks connected with it that you mm-hmm. know as we're discussing here so yeah please please continue <laughs> okay the the um i i think what what i found with 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 cults that, that turn into closed systems is that the leader and and the sub leaders, they refuse to accept moderating influences that could change things from within. They lock that kind of thinking out very very early on, and that's what creates what we call destructive or deceptive uh, uh, cults. Whereas a healthier religion or a healthy science or a healthy society is one that's willing to moderate during the times or, or when new evidence comes around. You know, that, that, that you can moderate, you know, the, the Catholic Church, for instance, has been a reluctant uh, acceptor of the modern era, you know, so that Pope Leo in the 19th century denounced modernism. He said it was going to lead to hell, you know, and then you have Pope John Paul II praising evolutionary theory, saying we can learn a lot from it. You know, yep. so they're reluctant to change because they tend to be conservative and, um um, you know, and fear progressives because progressives might break up the whole system. That's the fear, you know, but systems never totally break up un- unless they're so rigid, they need to be broken up. You know, something like Marxism became very rigid. And yes. so Marxism is really a dead philosophy. You know, no one's ever going to make that work. So e- even though they're kind of shoehorning it into North Korea and, and into uh, China yet, um, uh, it's, it's just not working. 
North Korea dies without Chinese support, just like Cuba died, you know, more or less without Russian support. That that kind of economy can't work the way Marx designed it. It's just impossible. So Marx is dead, you know. God won. (laughs) (laughs) Interesting. Now, okay, so now, so so we've got this, uh, as I've described before, we have this sort of powerful figure in history who stood out, Blavatsky. Yeah. Puts this work out there. She's an influential thinker. She's different enough and standing up enough in her time that people are taking notice. She she makes herself noticeable. So she becomes this sort of nexus point from a from a you know if you look at all the random motions of history here you have a bunch of things kind of coming together in her which have now generated this new thought new age stuff so how how did that happen how do we go from blavatsky and her plagiarizing all this material putting it all together into these books that were as you've just demonstrated almost damn near impossible to read and yet we still know who she is and we mm-hmm. still have these philosophies forward, being forwarded. How did that? How 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 did that happen? Well, a, a theosophists early on began to split up. You know, mm-hmm. so you had several theosophical societies uh, almost right after she died. In fact, mm-hmm. there were two. There was a there was a segment that was trying to be more like Freemasons under Ocott and and led by some of the ones, and then Blavatsky developed her own separate section of special theosophy, which is what we now call theosophy, where Mm. she believed in these masters channeling through her. And that was the branch of theosophy in London that that Annie Besant, who was a Fabian socialist and an atheist at the time, uh, and she converted to Blavatsky when she was interviewing Blavatsky about her book, The Secret Doctrine, and Blavatsky converted her and told her that she needs to take up the movement. And uh, and she did. You know, so without Annie Besant, Theosophy might have just filtered away in, in another version. And Besant um, had her co-leader was uh, a guy named Leadbeater, uh, Charles Leadbeater. And he was English Anglican, a former Anglican, who um, believed in the occult version of Theosophy. He was homosexual, um, but back then you were you couldn't be out you know but he always had young men you always had young men around him and he got thrown out of the theosophical society for seven years because word got out that he was teaching young boys to masturbate to relieve their anxiety (laughs) so that wasn't a great thing to do you know and so he was kind of a pedophile at the same time wow Uh, so he but but Nevertheless, he, he was an energetic guy. His book on the chakras is still being sold in New Age bookstores. You can still buy it. Led Beater's book on the chakras with all these colorful illustrations that he uh, inspired. Mm. Um, I mean, it's it's kind of a bastardization of what Hindus teach. But, but yeah, I kind of I kind of got that. There's sort of some right. white man Hinduism in there. <laughs> exactly. So so Led Beater yeah. went down to um, Australia. And he started something called the Liberal Catholic Church, which is a form of theosophy in Australia. And that still exists. It's a small theosophical movement. But but what he did was he combined theosophy or occultism with Anglicanism. So he put on the vestments of an Anglican priest with all the smoke and the hoopla and the host and everything and infused it with theosophical understanding. 
you know, so wow. he developed his own hybrid with him, of course, as leader, right? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> so that's only one. And there were dozens of these things, like the Order of the Golden Dawn, which was a famous group. Um, it inspired the, the Irish and British literary revival in the early part of the, of the, of the 20th century. Um, you know, wow. Joyce, uh, T.S. Eliot, um, William Butler Yeats, uh, Ezra Pound, they, they all had some mix in with those theosophists in the Golden Dawn. You know, they, they, they had this idea that a poet also contacted a muse a master, another world, in order for their inspiration to come through. You know, so the idea of the poet's muse very much fits into the order, order of the Golden Dawn idea. And that's why it influenced literature. And music and, and a lot of things, yeah. And once it gets into the arts, people start getting inspired by these things, and then they start hearing some of these words, and they go, wait a minute, what's that? And then they start looking yeah. into it, and then... Right. You know, because it's connecting at, an, at, a, at a high emotional level, and that's powerful. Sure. There's, there's very few things that are going to connect a human being to something more powerfully than these high emotional, mm -hmm. impactful yeah. events, you know? Right. One of the other, the main um, branches of theosophy, where there's two, Agni Yoga and, and the Alice A. Bailey movement called the New Group of World Servers. So Alice Bailey was an Anglican... Uh, a, a woman who was married to an Anglican minister. Uh, the minister was stationed in India and um, uh, they had two daughters, but he was, he was abusive to her. He threw her down the steps and beat her up and, and, and whatever. So the bishop allowed them to separate. And Annie Besant took her kids and, and moved to California, got out there to support herself. She was working in a cannery, you know, canning fish and stuff. And it happened to be that there was a theosophical center out there in near Los Angeles, and she got to know the Theosophist, and she got into it very deeply because you know her Christianity was brutal to her through her husband. So now Theosophy was a way of saving her spirituality, and she became a teacher of Theosophy. And lo and behold, one of Blavatsky's masters, Joa Kool, called the Tibetan, took hold of Alice A. Bailey's brain and mind and began to channel through her. So there's 20 books out there channeled by Alice Bailey. Um, she died in 1949, um, all done by this Tibetan master. The Bailey books had probably the greatest influence on what we call the New Age movement of any theosophical movement. You know? Interesting. Yeah. If you remember back in 19, early 1980s, this guy named uh, Benjamin Krem was running around he took out, uh, he was from England, he was an artist, abstract artist, and he took out full-page ads in the New York Times, the London Times, the LA Times. I mean, these were expensive full-page ads saying the Christ is now here. And he was the, the person that the Christ was speaking through, the Christ Maitreya, Maitreya the Buddha, in other words. So Buddha and Christ are merged in this guy's mind. And he began to lecture all around the United States and England and Europe and he was on talk shows in the United States. He was everywhere in the early 80s. I saw him twice. He came through Santa Fe, and I questioned him at one point. Um, I got the Maitreya's blessing, you know, as he was gazing <laughs> at people up there. Yeah, he wow. was a big phenomenon. He was, he was like a major thing. And so that was, he was a student of Alice A. Bailey. Right. And Bailey's teachings. And he broke off and started his own thing. 
He died. Oh, yeah. He died a few years ago. But there's still a small movement still supporting this failed prophecy that Christ never showed up. He was predicting that this Christ Maitreya was going to appear out of the clouds in an airplane and, and that he was going to look like a Pakistani male, you know. So, wow. Yeah. It, it, wow. He had thousands of followers. Thousands of followers. Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, I think we could, I, I, I don't, I use this analogy cautiously. I'm not, I'm not trying to say religion is a virus, but ideas spread like them. Like they, a meme. You know, yeah, like memes. That's right. That's right. That's not a new idea with me. Obviously. No, that was by Dawkins. Dawkins in, yeah. invented that. One to the next to the next, and it just spreads out. And we watch these yeah. chains of, you know, the the these exponential growth chains, I guess, you know, of of these ideas spreading and mutating and spreading and mutating and spreading. And and we can trace them back just like we can a virus, I guess. Yeah. You know, it's fascinating. <laughs> This is what Godwin says about Blavatsky here. You'll get a kick out of this. He says, um, he says, it's hard to overestimate Madame Blavatsky's influence on the American metaphysical scene. Yeah. Okay. Portions of her teachings have been incorporated into virtually every occult group extant, though mostly without giving her a credit line. They don't even know where it comes from, yet they're repeating what she was teaching. Yeah. Over and over again, I have listened to cult leaders expounding the Blavatsky gospel to their flock as their own uniquely original discoveries or rather revelations. Sometimes I had the feeling that the ghost of the Russian woman was hovering over the audience, slapping her massive thighs and laughing her head off. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll bet, you know, if she was still around, I'll bet you that's true. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, because that because what do these guys want? They want immortality. I mean, look at Hubbard, right? I mean, yeah. he's flat out said it. And how do you get it? You you keep people saying your name, you keep people saying your ideas, right. you know, you just keep it out there, and that's about as much immortality as anybody's ever gonna get. Right. You know, and that's really at the end of the day what so many of these narcissistic types are are really all about, is they just want to mm -hmm. slam their name into history. And she really did. And I think Hubbard was trying to follow in her footsteps uh, when I keep thinking, because of course, I'm going to keep relating this stuff to Scientology. It's what I'm most familiar with. I'm sure. But, well, it, but, but it easily spreads out to all these other groups. Right. The know? parallels are all there. I mean, Scientology oh, yeah. is basically part of the art culture. Yeah. That's all that's it right. is. That's yeah. exactly right. And, and the Golden Dawn stuff, I mean, that leads to OTO. Oh, yeah. OT, you know, Ordo Templi Orientis, right? Temple yeah. of the East. I'm Parsons whole... was into Parsons, oh, yeah. who was with Hubbard, was into that stuff. Absolutely, deep down. Yeah. So that's the Hubbard connection. I mean, you want you, the connections are not even hard to find. I mean, they're not. It's not like you have to sort of. Oh, I guess maybe Hubbard read one of Blavatsky's, you know, pamphlets one time or something. No, no, the connections are much more solid than that. You go Blavatsky, Crowley, yeah, yeah. Parsons, Hubbard. I mean, it's right there. You don't have to yeah. dig it any deeper yeah. than that. Hubbard knew about theosophy. Hubbard talked about it. He talked about all of this stuff. He actually called his own revival of science or, or attempt to get Scientology out into the world initially yeah. Golden Dawn. There you he go. Called it Golden Dawn. He, called, he, he said these lectures, you know, the, the, the lectures of, of the Golden Dawn. And uh -huh. this is a an extant set of CDs, lectures you can buy right now. Okay, okay. So there you go. <laughs> you know, these terms just roll forward in time and and get used and changed. And I I just wanted to uh, to show 
where this stuff comes from. It's not original to Hubbard. It's not original to, to, to any of these people. You know, this stuff. No, it's not even original to, Bl- to Blavatsky. I mean, this exactly. stuff, you know, is, is mutated in many different ways. Where it began, it began in the Garden of Eden. I don't know. You know, you, <laughs> right. you, you, you know, and, and the argument started there because I mentioned this the last time we talked. Yeah. Um, the Genesis story of the snake. Um, there's two versions of that. The Theosophists, and this is Blavatsky teaching, uh, like the Gnostics, said that the snake, the talking snake, was actually a form of the true God inspiring man to rebel against the false God, to use their reason and to, to develop their own ethics and their own judgment. You know, so, That's right. so when you see in the Genesis story, Elohim saying to Adam and Eve, who told you you were naked? Because now they have clothes on. You know, they were like the animals before. They didn't have to wear clothes. You know, the, the, you don't see apes wearing loincloths. That's right? right. That's right. And so now the ape took on a loincloth. And, and you know, what, what? how did you begin to judge that your genitals aren't to be looked at? <laughs> well, somehow mankind got the idea that, that, one, we need protection because we're kind of naked apes. But the other thing was you need to cover some parts because men get horny really quick. And so let's just cover them up so they don't get horny all the time. You know, so you're developing this culture coming out of the ape culture that was very different. And Genesis spells it out. So you can look at it one way of saying the snake is just a natural form of mankind's mind evolving. Or you can take the Gnostics and saying the snake is warning man to get away from the false god. You know, right. so the Gnostic version is wrong. I think that the Genesis writers were actually looking at the natural development of evolution in their own simple way. You know, I don't think they were wrong. I just Fair don't enough. think it was sin that caused this. But in a sense, it was because once the ape, the naked ape, began to take on judgment, unlike any other ape does, you know, about morals and ethics. Now he's making mistakes. He's not using instincts anymore. And he's seeing other people make mistakes. And so now they got to set up little crews with a chief saying, you made a mistake, you're getting punished. You know, so we have the development of society, of law, of, of ethics, of organization, you know, yeah. in this early development of tribes, of the human tribe. And yes, we're sinning because all our judgments are flawed. You know, and that's <laughs> where the idea of original sin really comes from, is that we have flawed judgments, basically. Even our courts make flawed judgments continually. They just do the best they can, you know. That's right. That's right. You know. So, so and, and know. that's the take. That's that's more of an intellectual take on that time and that and those writings right. that I appreciate. I I like it. I like to 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 mix them up and and look at different ways that these things could be interpreted instead of just the fundamentalist. Yeah, that's you know, why. That's why I, I like playing with. A, yeah. Sinners yeah. in the hands of an angry God nonsense. You know, I just, I, I, I you know, it's, it's eloquent. It's it, in a way it's emotionally powerful, but, uh, mm-hmm. but at the end of the day, I reject all of it. I just can't, I, I can't believe in something so simpleton, you know, but right. I appreciate the idea that maybe these guys were having deeper thoughts and were writing about right. deeper concepts. That's what excites me. That's when I go, yeah, yeah. let's talk about that. And that's why I go, if you had to say, if I had to say Gnosticism versus Christianity, I'd go, let's talk Gnosticism for a while, you know, because I yeah. find that really fascinating. Yeah, but I think you're right. I mean, in a way, it's a false dichotomy because there is no 
such thing as Gnosticism versus Christianity. It became a thing right. in the church councils because these guys were trying to sort out what they wanted and what they didn't want, yeah, exactly. which they had a right to do. But in fact, they had a demand to do it. Constantine said, get this thing sorted out. And so they started hammering out these ideas, you know. So, right. Yeah. And, 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 yeah. and from the point of view of government trying to utilize this to unify its people in such a way that everybody could just kind of live in a more orderly life because we're all going to be on the same page. Is that such a bad thing? No. I mean, you know, the intent isn't horrible. What they came up with certainly opened the door to a whole lot of abusive behavior, but trying to get everybody on the same page isn't in and of itself a bad thing. You know, right. trying to set up a, a, a standard of rules and guidelines, and this is how we're going to engage in this thing we're going to call religious practice or organized religion. Not a bad thing in and of itself. It's just, you know, what, what systems did we set up? And, you know, some of those systems weren't, uh, weren't as good as others. Yeah, and they're constantly under adjustment. You know, yep. the, the, what, what we call healthy religion or healthy science or healthy politics is, is, is in adjustment. It's what the Muslims call the proper jihad, the struggle to get things right, the struggle, you know, to, 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 to live a righteous life. That, that is, jihad means struggle. You know, so the struggle ceases when you have a certain system that feels it's certain within itself. So the only struggle is, is, is to repeat the system from within and, and, and to, to follow the leader. That's not really the proper struggle. You know, that's, that's basically giving up your ability to, to reason outside the box and giving up the will to will on your own to change things for the better, which is what cults want you to do. They want you yeah. to submit to their will and not buck the system, you know? So that's, you know, there's no easy way to explain this, but that's that's essentially it. Is how I see it. Is is every system that whatever you come up with. Well, who was it? Emerson, among the transcendentalists, said that every every thinking man has a a new religion or a new system in their pocket. You know? Right. That's right. <laughs> that's right. That's exactly right. Which yeah. is which has led me to believe also that I don't think that anybody is on the same page as anybody else, completely, totally, one hundred percent. When it comes to religious belief, I think religious belief is as I, as individual as our DNA. I think it really does run that way in terms of when you get into the nitty gritty details of what, what does mm -hmm. the person believe. Let me ask you about one other thing, and then we will move to wrapping this up. I, I said at the very beginning, there was also, this is also um, springboard or time period of um, the secret Right. The law of attraction, right. this idea that you're going to put stuff out in the universe and it's going to magically come back to you. Or if you're good, then the universe will be good to you. Or, you know, this this tit for tat with the universe kind of approach to things. Where does that come from and fit into this? Because this is also a heavy strain of philosophical religious thought in the 19th, 20th centuries that has now developed into a billion dollar industry. Yeah. You know. it, it, it comes out of early proto-science in, in the 19th century and a form of Christianity. Okay, so these two mm -hmm. things were combined. Let's go back to Anton Mesmer. Um, okay. he, he developed this idea that, that there's kind of these ethers that, that emotions and things could be travel from one person to another and cause illness or cause discomfort or whatever. He called it animal magnetism. Oh, and so yeah. so he believed that there was magnetic energy going around, which to some extent there is, 
but but he thought it was also mental, you know, that that, that mm. also like thoughts were magnetized. And they could come from the universe, from objects, from animals, from people to people. And so to do therapy, Mesmer had, like women mainly, were a lot of his followers, sitting around these magnetized vats of water. with that was, and, and he would move this energy around on a, a magnet on the end of a stick. And that's where the idea of the magic wand came around. And this guy you know, had like a cape or a cloak on, and he would move the energy around with this thing. And people would have... People would have at least that's one story I heard. This is, this is where the wand. This is brother. That's awesome. where the wand comes that. from. Harry Potter. I mean, it was <laughs> right. Anton Mesmer. You know, <laughs> and so so people would have reactions. You know, to 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 his whatever his words, his contortions, his you know, and all of this. And some people felt healed by all this, felt relieved of their of their energies because he would, you know, kind of wand them away. Right. <laughs> so right. So Which we guy, now refer to as getting your magnetic fields in alignment. And this there you go. Right. So later, this guy Phineas P. Quimby, he was kind of a business person, whatever, got interested in Mesmer's ideas, but thought of it in a different way. And so he also was looking at the channeling thing. He had somebody supposedly channeling energy when he was working with people to try to heal them through mental healing, what he called mental healing. And so Quimby felt that Jesus healed people this way, that, that he convinced people to put on the pure mind of God and it would make the illness go away when they believed in that, you know, mm. or, or their, their, their problems with their families or whatever, their financial ruin or whatever. You put on the mind of God and you hold to it perfectly and then nothing can touch you. Okay, so you, you're going to be good. And so he coined the word, he didn't coin it, but he said in his writings, that this was Christian science. So oh. one of his, one of Phineas Quimby's, Quimby's clients was Mary Baker Eddy. Uh -huh. She was younger without her, you know, her Eddy name. She went to him and lo and behold, she had chronic back pain. She had a session with Quimby and her back pain was alleviated. And so she thought, wow, this is true because of my personal experience. It must be true. You know, this right. is the new age mantra. I yeah. experienced it. Therefore, it's true. <laughs> you know, so. That is that is it in a nutshell. That's, that's right. it. You know, whereas science begins with empirical evidence or experience, but that's only the beginning. That's not the right. end of the thing. You use a lot right. of vicarious information, right? But the New Age mantra is, if I experience it, it's true for me. Therefore, it's true, right? Yep, yep. So this is what Quimby was operating on. So, so along comes Mary Baker Eddy. And others, you know, that started the Unity Church and others branching off of Quimby started the New Thought Movement, which is, again, New Thought means the new religion of Jesus, which has been around a couple thousand years, says put on the mind of God with the mind of perfection if you don't want God in it, and all things will become well. So let's move forward. You know, the, the, into the early 20th century, you have this guy, um, uh, Coué, in France, who developed Coué's theorem, which is... You know, in every way and in every day, I'm getting better and better and better. And Kuwait's dictum was was recited. That mantra was recited by millions of people throughout Europe and, and the United States. It became a thing, you know, back in the right fad and the 20. Yeah. You know. So so moving forward, you have, um, you know, there's a lot more to this, but you have this woman, Helen Schuchman. In the 1960s, who's a psychologist that goes to work at Columbia Hospital in New York, 
under a, a psychiatrist, Bill Thetford. And Thetford's an ex-Christian scientist, by the way, back then. And, and, and so they're having trouble there because the staff is ill-organized and Helen has her own psychological problems. She begins to channel this being that she believes is Jesus. And it's telling her, she calls it the voice originally, and the voice is telling her to take down dictation. And she comes in and tells Thetford about it. And he's intrigued with it. He says, go ahead and, and take this down. So, so um, over a seven-year period, she comes in with these notes every night that she channels from the voice. And in the early 70s, they have this pile of papers, and now it's done. And they get somebody to edit it, a, a Jew who was a former uh, seminarian in a Catholic seminary. This guy edits the whole thing, and it becomes A Course in Miracles. Oh, shut up. That's where that yes. came from? Exactly. Oh, it comes out of the new thought. It comes directly out of the new thought idea. Oh, and my so God. so if you look at A Course in Miracles and break it down, it's, it's Phineas Quimby's new thought re-energized into modern times. Right. And, of course, you have people, again, like Oprah Winfrey holding it up, saying, this is my new Bible, you know, and people buy it and, and read it and meditate right. on it and blah, blah, blah. You know, it's endless. Oh, I, my I've God. exit counseled at least a dozen people directly, days that, that are influenced by groups based on A Course in Miracles when I was doing this more. There's a lot of cults based on, just like on the Bible, there's a lot of cults based on the Course in Miracles as well. Yeah. But but you can also Man. deconstruct the Course. You know, there's a way to deconstruct it. Oh, so, sure. Yeah. So then, then what happens? The next big wave was the secret. Yep. Again, the same idea. Yep. It's the idea that... that that reality is 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 um, in the chorus of miracles. It, it it's basically saying that this reality is attacking you. It's an attack, kind of like the Gnostics were saying that the fallen world of the demiurge is attacking the pure spirit within you and making you feel bad and making you suffer and making you think bizarrely and and and, and all of that. You need to get out of that, escape from this world through meditation. Or even among one Gnostic group, they practiced something called the Endora, meaning you were permitted to starve yourself to death in order to get out of this life. And they wow. would just stop eating. And that was considered That's... a holy act among those Gnostics. Damn. You know, so, yeah, it, it was Endora, E-N-D-U-R-A. It was a, a Greek term, to endure till the end. You know, so, so, so the secret comes directly out of the New Thought tradition. And it's the idea that, that if you... Tune into the your, your perfect thoughts. If you send them out there, the universe will return, or God, or Jesus, or whatever you want to define it, will will come back, kind of like a magic boomerang. You know, will bounce back to you and heal you. Will heal the planet. You know, will bring you your Cadillac, uh, whatever the hell you're throwing out there. You know, so right. uh, that's the secret. Interesting that this was also incorporated in the 1950s, early on in Scientology, through what mm -hmm. were called postulates, positive, positive yeah. thinking, right? This idea that you put a thought out there that is perfect, that is exactly, precisely, with no counterintention imagined right. or allowed. And if mm -hmm. you do this perfect thing, and this is, this is rampant through Scientology, this is not Scientology minutia. This is, no. Every Scientologist believes this. Okay. Um, that you will get that, that, that postulate will come true. It's got the power mm -hmm. of a positive postulate. I heard right. this so many times growing up in yeah. the 70s. Well, that, yeah. And this is Hubbard's version of that. 
Interesting. Yeah, that's Phineas yeah. Quimby. That's yeah. Course in Miracles. That's the secret. Interesting. You know? Yeah. So, so, you know, again, all this stuff gets incorporated and they, they, they change the words, they change the tune a little bit to match with their, you know, with the cult leaders philosophy, but it's the same ideas baked over again and again and again. You know? yeah, but think, think about this, Chris, this, this is endemic to, to human beings, to our, to our, our, our the way we, we want to think, because we can't control the world. It's, it's a mess in, in some okay. ways. And, and there's certain things we can do, you know, if we learn the skills like farming and building things and, and you know, we, we learn we can control that stuff to some extent. But a lot we can't, you know, there's plagues, there's the weather, there's, you know, blah, blah, blah. That's so right, global we, we, pandemics. Right. So, you know, so we, we plant statues of saints in the ground hoping that the crop gets better and yeah. and, and, and things like that. The, the, the ancient art of mantra chanting in India of, of repeating something, every mantra was hooked to a specific deity, you know, so you invoke the deity to help you with whatever it is you're chanting about, you know, in, in fact, it might just be chanting to, to be one with Lakshmi, the, the, the great giver of wealth, or, or with Ganesh, the great protection from obstacles and, and, and from evil, um, you know, so you, you do the chant and you get that God's protection, you know, so it's, it's the same idea that the, the thought the chant, um, uh, spoken chant, if you will, the affirmation, yep. you know, we'll put it out there and then it comes back magically. So we have this superstitious character is pervasive throughout the human race. Absolutely. And, and, it, and it really can't be denied. It drives so much of our behavior. And we like to think of ourselves as these rational creatures. But, you know, let's let's be real. We are yeah. rational. We've accomplished a lot. You know, let's, let's not let's right. not downgrade what we do have. But at the same time, let's not puff ourselves up too much. We still fall for and believe in all kinds of nonsense because it makes us feel better. It makes us feel like we're more on top of things, more in control. Right. And Chris, sometimes I still do it. I catch myself, you know, <laughs> as much as I know, <laughs> so I go, why I. the hell did I believe that book? You know, it, it, it right. sounded so convincing. And then I read a critic and I go, shit, you know, this guy's really not saying anything. So I still I fall for it. Of course, yeah. we all do because we have yeah. needs. We have emotional needs, yeah, and, yeah. and they and they can't be met with reason alone. It's just how we are. So yeah. it, it, that that's a duality that's for real. The mm -hmm. the rational, emotional. I mean, they might be the same neurons firing in here, creating those things or yeah. or manifesting those things, but but they are distinct sets of ideas that we have in our head and, and the way we operate with them. And, and yeah, uh, yeah cult, all we really talk about with cult leaders or with cults or with crazy beliefs and stuff is not that it's bad to have these ideas because we can't help but have these ideas. It's, it's, are we being taken advantage of and are we being, are we, are we going extreme with them? And that's where we want to kind of pull on the reins yeah. and go, okay, hang on. Let's, we, we got a little, we got ourselves a little out of control here. Let's pull it back and let's, let's get back to, you know, a more unfortunately mundane reality, but you know, the reality we all really live in. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. So in other day. words, let's keep talking, you know, the philosophers <laughs> right. call it, the, the philosophers call it the long debate. That's right. That's right. And it's a, and it can be fun. And it can yeah. be interesting and it can even be a little exciting. So, so I'm always down for that part. So Joe, thank you so much for, sure. for doing this again and, uh, and going over all this stuff. I think this was a, actually, I really like this one better than yeah. the original one we did. 
right. I think we got deeper on some things and covered some stuff. So, so I really appreciate your time. Thanks for sharing your knowledge with us. I appreciate being on it. Thanks a lot, Chris. It was fun. You bet. And yes, folks out there, any questions, comments, feedback, leave it in the comments section here on YouTube or at sensiblyspeaking.com and consider supporting the show because that's what allows me to keep putting it out here for you. All right, guys. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.